Welcome to the Art Podcast. Our show features conversations with Canadian recording artists. In each episode, our host, Tressa Levasseur, explores how background, influences, and personal journey shape the creative process. Every show features two original songs by the guest artist, so stick around to hear some great music. Today's episode features contemporary roots songwriter Amanda Rayum from her home in Ottawa, Ontario. Amanda! It's very exciting to be here with you. How are you today? Very good. How are you, Tressa? I am good. Oh, Amanda Rayum, we have had so many good laughs together. It's true. I'm looking forward to this, this time together. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning more about you. Me too. Are you ready to dive in? Yes, I, I am mostly ready. Okay. These always <laughs> start with the same question. What is your first or your earliest memory of music? I think it's of my mom sitting at the piano playing Moonlight Sonata. Is that what it's called? Moonlight Sonata. I, she used to play, she knew a few songs and she would just get down there and she'd play the that piece. And I remember just like being a little kid and looking up and, and listening to her play this. I mean, the piece is beautiful. Uh, so I think that's my earliest musical memory ever. I've never thought about that. What mood did that piece of music elicit in you? It's sort of somber and powerful and sort of sad. <laughs> It feels like a deep well of a song. And I think that this is such a great question. I've never thought about this, but I'd imagine that hearing my mom play that song would have invoked this kind of, oh, this is what music is. And this is what music feels like, you know, this deep connection to the sounds and the mood. It's such a beautiful song. I had a colleague at theater school who would put it on and lie in bed and weep to that track. (laughs) He was a weird guy. It was theater. Yeah. Well, you know, Um, but I love the, I love the image of you as like this tiny little person being like the dark sorrow and grief of the human spirit via my mom. Well, and you know, that continues to tell the rest of the story of of my, (laughs) potentially my life, you know, we'll have to find out, but it's, it's, that's such a cool connection. I'm so grateful for that question. Um, What was the role beyond that, that sort of first image? What was the role of music in your family or your immediate network, your close network? And did it influence you beyond obviously the Steve Well that we've already touched upon, but mm-hmm. what was the music scene in young Amanda's life? Yeah, great question. I learned piano before anything. I uh, was put into like classical piano lessons. And I remember after a while just being like, I don't want to learn this. I just want to play pop music. You know, I want to play Brian Adams and and all the fun stuff. So we switched out of classical and, and I started learning like pop songs on the piano and learning how to read music. I think I was probably nine or 10 or something. My mom played a little bit. My dad's an accountant. You know, my dad's brother was a bass player in a band called Roman Gray, famous in Germany. Yeah. Um, and uh, it wasn't like a daily thing, actually, music, but learning piano at a young age. And then after switching to pop songs, I was like, well, this isn't cool enough. And so I I, uh, borrowed my mom's brother's big Western, huge guitar. I was 12 and it was like the size of me and it was terribly set up. It was like the most impossible guitar to play. And I started taking lessons and playing guitar on this massive, massive instrument. Um, So I'd say like, as a young person, 
that those were the things that I could remember for sure. And I just loved, I loved playing the piano and I loved playing the guitar that I would just sit in my room. I didn't really sing. I never sang. I didn't even like singing until like three, four years ago, maybe. Okay, wait, what? Yeah. So hang on. I'm picturing a tween Amanda Rayom, like just, just, just before the tween years, nine, plunking out, run to you on the piano. Yeah. Convinced it's not cool enough. Just before she gets this enormous guitar the size of herself. No singing? Never sang. Never, ever sang. I hated singing. Where was the melody? There was no melody. I just learned guitar. I like, then I got an electric guitar and then I learned how to solo and like did the whole thing. And then I was like put in this band program where they put a bunch of youth together and like there was a band leader and they taught you how to learn to play together. And it was all really amazing. But even in high school, I think I was in grade nine or 10. My first time on stage was like at Confed High School in Ottawa that is closed now, but I was wearing like big baggy cargo pants and Doc Martens and, you know, like long hair, not brushed and just like, you know, a total listening to Kurt Cobain. And and I just played electric guitar. I didn't sing. Our band was instrumental. Okay. That's so funny. Well, this is like Diana Krall's story, right? Where she... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. No, she was a jazz piano player for a long time. She didn't play. And then one day someone overheard her and was like, you really probably should sing. And she was like, no, I don't like singing. And then she became yeah. Diana Krall. <laughs> I, I, so I'm so curious about this. And I'm just going to throw my questions out of the window for now. Love it. Like, what bro- how, did you, how did you break down that, that Berlin Wall within yourself to take to the stage as a singer what happened who told you you could like what it's so fun to think about I was living in Barhaven we'd moved there when I was like six or something like that which is a little suburb it was a very little suburb of Ottawa and culturally like void of any kind of (laughs) you know arts or like anything interesting essentially at that time and so I I can't remember which came first either Jagged Little Pill came out or I started just like writing poetry And I was making up these songs on my acoustic guitar, this huge Western guitar, and writing in my diary all furiously. And I was like, I guess I could just make this a song. And so I would sing it. And the first song I ever wrote, Red and Anger. Do you say Red and Anger? Red and Anger. Will you please regale us with a lyric or little phrase from that song? Uh, Well, the chorus was just Red and Anger, Red and Anger. Uh, The Moment of Insanity. Oh, I can't remember. It was like so long ago. It was like, I'm pretty sure you ought to know had come out and I was like, I could do that too. And I, uh, I was like, so into Alanis. I met her when I was really, really young. Cause my aunt was her high school teacher, a drama teacher. So I met her in her never too hot days and, uh, never too hot, never too cold, never too hot, too hot to hold. Right. And the hair and the whole thing. I actually think that that really <laughs> impacted me because I was really awestruck. I was like, or starstruck. And I was like, oh, wow. And then she went on to do, you know, what she's doing now. But I absolutely hated singing. I hated singing. And the first, I think the first time I ever sang was at a coffee house that was outside at ca- outside Confed. And I had my big, I had a new guitar now. I had a Yamaha acoustic guitar. And I broke a string and I was already so nervous and I broke a string. So I borrowed my friend Tara Holloway's guitar, but she 
just tuned to herself. And I was playing like with a friend on piano and it was like traumatizing. It was like, it didn't start me off on the right foot. That's for sure. But I was really nervous and I would just get a sore throat. I would get a sore. I thought I had strep throat before every gig. That somatic connection. Yeah. And energy and like fear to speak up and sound your voice and these are things I still work on, you know, like consciously work on every day. And I think that it's interesting that I'm a singer. Okay. So wait, so this Barhaven gig where your guitar is not tuned to the piano and you broke a string, is this like, you've already bit Jagged Little Pillow is already out or Jagged Little Pillow is not out yet? I think it would have been because it was past 1999 because I was in like grade 10 or something. What do you think it was about Alanis's Jagged Little Pillow album, that connection? with her we've talked about but what was it about that 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 felt like a little bit of a opening I think because she just seemed so fearless and like kind of like I hadn't seen that before um, note to listener Amanda just put both middle fingers up and <laughs> oh yeah we're doing a podcast yeah but I loved it and the visual was really it was solid double middle finger um I think and just also actually like the words that she used like I, I loved reading and I loved words and, and then there was just the way she would sing the words and she, it was just this whole new thing and the, the whipping around on stage. And it's like, I want to do that. I, it really spoke to me this, like something that was needed to wake up inside of me. What I, what I loved about her music or her voice coming out in that way at that time. So it was such a like about face from never too hot is that she, nothing about her wanted to be pretty. Yeah. And I was like, yes. Yeah. Like, woo. Mm-hmm. And which was like around the same time as like Bjork was not trying to be pretty either. Mm-hmm. Right. She was coming out with those records and it was such a time of like G R R R R L power. That was, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Okay. So we're still not at a moment of stepping into the center of the light as the singer. What's that moment I don't know I've done so many gigs that I can't even remember the very first time into the center stage and and because what I did is I you know I went away to university and I wrote this EP in my dorm room at Ryerson I lived in Pittman Hall for a year and and I wrote an EP and I call it spring cleaning you know and like the cover had like rubber gloves on it like it was just so funny and and I recorded it all myself in my little room and I guess at that point I started really doing open mics and I guess right before that I had started doing open mics so I did a lot of open mics and then I went away to university I came back I was actually diagnosed with panic disorder and like crazy amounts of um, anxiety and depression and I had to like deal with that and then I started playing um in Ottawa, like a lot of bar gigs, like a a lot of bar gigs. So I wasn't even really in the center stage because I was kind of cutting my teeth in that way, like getting my voice stronger and singing for people that don't care and singing while people talk while people eat chicken wings. That's the weirdest one. I get it. But you know, like these coffee houses and these bar gigs, It occurs to me that they are like the strength training of the marathon that is a music career. Like you start with like doing the push-ups, doing the sit-ups, like the basic calisthenics, just building some muscle memory for later when everyone's listening. Yeah. And like, what do you do with that pin drop? Especially if you have anxiety. I got more comfortable playing bar gigs for a little bit, which actually Steve Mariner was the one that was like, what are you doing? Like, stop doing these gigs. And, uh, 
I'll, I'll thank him forever for that. But um, yeah, I felt really comfy when people were half listening. And it's only been since really like I started traveling to Europe and doing better shows here in, in Canada. But like in Europe, I mean, I'm sure you know, like nobody speaks and like they wait to clap until like this last note decays. And then it's like, <laughs> and then they, and, the, and it's like, it's the most... Yeah. And then I got used to that, you know, uh, and that felt really good, but that seriously, if I really think about it, it's only been in the last maybe four or five years that I've like wanted that and, and felt like I maybe deserved that even, you know, um, with this being like the story of how our intrepid hero gets <laughs> to the center of the tale, who is it that you want to reach based on like where you've come from where you've been like who are the people that when you think about let's say more community engaged programming like you go to a town and they're like can you do an extra thing what would be who do you want them to ask you to go and do a thing with what thing do you want them to ask you I love working with youth I've done a lot of different things like working with youth and working with cancer survivors um I love writing songs with people doing songwriting workshops because there's a vulnerability and a disbelief that, that they, these, sometimes these people have, you know, you sit down with them and they're like, I don't know. I I, like, I I can't believe we're going to walk out of here with a song. I'd say that's been some of the most rewarding work that I've done is work with youth or, you know, different, different kinds of humans that are in this place that they want to dig deeper about something that they feel. And, and kind of just, it's already all there, but you're sort of helping them pull the, the layers back and the covers back, you know, on their own experience. And because I think a lot of people that don't do music for their job, um, they're like, I could never write a song. Like, I don't know, how do you even do that? You know, and I really love that work. Um, and I, I especially love doing it with youth, um, in communities that are maybe having a harder time um, because it's can, it can be a lifeline, you know, learning self-expression and having someone give you that feedback that you're doing a great job, your voice matters, you matter, you know, what you think and feel matters. That work is like nothing else because if you, I don't know, for me, if I can change, not change, if I can, support one person in that way to not feel so alone. Like I felt I'm, I'm so, so privileged. And so I grew up so privileged, um, you know, admittedly, and I felt so alone. And if I can help or, you know, that I don't like that word, but if I can, you know, why don't you like that word help? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a different word to use like forever now, but yeah, if I can be a part of, of anyone's journey in that way, that feels like a big gift. That's interesting. Like, I wonder if health feels like paternalistic or like, like there's some kind of power dynamic that is, doesn't feel right to you. Yeah. I don't love it. And I've been thinking about why. Yeah. I sort of also think of like that savior syndrome where you're like, I'll help you because you need help. You know, like, I don't, I don't know. So I've, I, I think about those things a lot. I think about language a lot. And I, I really, you know, feel that we all have gifts and they're all equally as important. And so I, I look at it more like 
we're on the same plane. So I'm not really helping anyone, you know, I'm right. You're like, you're almost like it, 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 what you're talking about to me when I hear you and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, we're talking about like acting as a connection mm. or helping people to connect to what they already have. I love that. Like you were already a singer right? <laughs> when you were, no, you were though, because you're playing these songs, right. And like in your head, like clearly you're not like bing, 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 bing. Like it's run to you is happening with the feeling right. And otherwise you wouldn't have known that it was too dorky on the piano. Right. <laughs> you already had that within you, but you needed some kind of rod or like yeah. cable. Yeah. Plugged in and plugged in somewhere else. Ampl- totally. Like that amplify word. So choose your words carefully. I love that you just said that. Mm. How has an evolving sense of care in choosing your words affected you as a songwriter? Ooh, so much. Like long story short, I started writing songs and they were just kind of verbal journal diarrhea, like feelings, 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 you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. And then as I traveled through the music career that I have had, I I was playing rock songs and like a with a full band that was loud. And, and then, and then I went on this tour in the U S with four other, I think four other singer songwriters. It was like the five of us in a van. It was hilarious. And I remember it was the first time I played solo in a really long time. And I was like, I don't have anything to say. Like I'm playing these pop rock songs that I wrote because somebody told me I should be writing those kinds of songs. And, and I don't feel good about this. You know, same thing. I would stand in front of, I went to Afghanistan a bunch of times to play for our people that were there. And I remember thinking like, what am I really saying? You know, so it's been this evolving dig for me to continue to like, try like, what am I trying to say? How can I say that better or stronger? Um, Because our words really matter and they reverberate and well, you know, we stand on stage and we just say things and sing things and what an opportunity and a responsibility, I think, to, uh, yeah, to bring the good words and, and good messages and all that. It makes me wonder, like, how your story, but also how your identities, your lived identities have influenced that aspect of, like, what you're writing. Because it sounds to me like your story is one of, stepping into yourself totally so as you step more deeply not only into like songwriter singer silence Mm -hmm. holder on of the stage (laughs) responsible social justice advocate like how how do some of your other lived identities affect your songwriting or do they yeah great question tons so i identify as uh gay or queer i don't really even know what words to use anymore I, i came out when when I was like 21 and I women were just saying they were gay and I know there's lots of other words now but yeah that took me a long time to talk about on stage at all I would not gender the songs I would not gender the stories you know until one day my dear friend sister Anna Ruddock was like why don't you just just say she and say her like what do you what who cares you know like just out of love and so I started to slowly and that was a big deal for me because I I still think for the longest time I was afraid of being rejected or being looked at a different way or what if people don't come to my shows because they thought this other thing of me and it's taken me a lot I'm still undoing some of that stuff um and 
taking risks and, and, you know, so I'd say, I mean, the skin I'm in, that was the first song and that was in 2015, I think. Um, that's the first time I ever gendered a song, mm-hmm. put the word she in it. And I'm still, yeah, figuring that out. Like even the new, the new record that's just being mixed right now. Um, it's an even deeper level into, into me. So I'm, I'm going to be working at this over and over. It's fascinating because just before we jumped into this topic, you're talking about taking care with words and how much words matter. And then, and then like, it's so beautiful and vulnerable for me to hear you struggle with, am I using the word gay? Am I using the word queer? Am I using like, what fucking word am I using? Pardon my life. Yeah. What Mm. word am I using? about myself, right? Like what an example of how much it matters and how deep these decisions are in our own lives. But then also like you think about rippling out and being a conduit for other people to feel connected, seen, like witnessed these youth. Oh yeah. And even people, like I I wrote a whole bunch of songs about my family's um, history and all sorts of old family stories and, and, and I would tell the stories on stage and I I can't tell you how many times people would come up to me after the show and then start telling me stories about their, their people, you know, like their families. And it's like, everyone has not everyone, but you know, there are stories for most people that, that I think it, it kind of inspired folks to think about where they came from, you know? Um, and I think, Actually, and Alana said this. It's so interesting, but this stuck with me that here she is again. And then she's she's always there. But people would she said something that like, you know, people come to the show, her show, to have an authentic experience of themselves. It's not really about her. And I really believe that on on a lot of levels. Like, and I think about that. Like, of course I'm a human and I'm up there and I have my own place and my own voice and my own feelings and stories and experiences. And it's, you know, you're doing this thing, you're playing guitar and you're singing and you're interacting with your band and all sorts of stuff. And, and you're, but the, the folks in the audience are having their own experience of themselves Yes. while they're listening and, and watching. Yes. And on top of you having your experience and them having their experience, I believe like as a, as a performer that my duty is to lead us all to facilitate a communal experience of spiritual uplift through the medium of music. Totally. That's it. hundred percent. That's it. Just to get to, to, to harness the togetherness. Yeah. Like it's real. Yes. It's really real. It's real. And it's an unsure, like being on tour and you're in a different place, like, I don't know if you know that's how it works, but different different place every night. Um, (laughs) But um, I I always like to say and remind people like this, this will never be the same. This will never be like this exactly ever again. And we're creating this authentic moment. There's no chance probably that we're all going to be in the same room together at this time on this day, on this year, this temperature, like whatever, fill in the blanks. And I love that. I love bringing the focus. And I I sometimes ask people this to like, they must think I'm psycho sometimes, but like, look around, like who's beside you? 
who are you with? Like, who's in front of you? What is this? Like, just whatever. Just like, look around. You're with these people. But what an, what an You're antidote all here together. to anxiety, to panic, to disconnect, to like, no, but that's an antidote. Like you're describing be here now. You're describing like a meditative mm. state of being present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're, you've, you've landed on that as like how you're going to like remind people and myself essentially like I didn't think about that either what a great you're really good at this I really love this and I'm loving this conversation so much because I feel like as I would have predicted Amanda Rayom not shy to just dive right in here's the stuff ready let's go you want to be funny you're in you want to be serious you're in I I love that about you I've loved our connections uh, throughout the years I've always felt like a sense of just realness yes ditto Tell me about a real moment that you, speaking of realness, that you had with an audience member or uh, someone that you worked with in songwriting. Well, this one that comes to my mind a lot, I was playing in Alert, uh, which is the very top of this country known as Canada, um, commonly known as Canada. It is like you can't go any further. Have you ever been there? I've not been to Alert. The furthest north I've been is either Iqaluit or Dawson City, like just... yeah. That makes sense. Um, this is, it was a military base and then it became sort of like a science place because it's just so far up. And and I got hired to do this kind of like variety like show for the folks up there for Christmas and or near Christmas time. And I flew up there in a Hercules jet, a jet. I think it's a plane. I don't know if it's a jet. It's a huge, it's those ones you're seeing on the news right now, like those massive, massive planes. And we had to wear Arctic suits in case the plane crashed because we would like not survive, you know, stuff like that. So we get up there, it's December, it's pitch black, no sunlight. Um, There used to be hundreds of people that work there. I think there was like 60 now of people that were posted up there. Um, the accommodations were what you'd imagine, but there was like, um, like the shutters for when it's summer, they're in the rooms there wood because they got to keep the light out. And some people had like painted summer scenes on there, you know, and like I turned off my light and someone had painted like, God loves you, you know, like this was, they, they didn't have locks on the doors, because people were struggling, like struggling up there, you know, to, to work up there for that long. Um, and I remember I met, uh, I met this one woman and we were at like dinner or something with the group with everybody and we were meeting people and I was like, Oh, are you going to come to the show? Like me, you know, <laughs> how's it going? And uh, we're doing this thing and like, it'd be great if you could come because there's this little theater and it's a high production show, like in ears and, tracks and like it's a Santa and like you know it's like a big big show and orchestrated like to the minute and uh and she was like oh I don't know and and then someone had been telling me that she she was having a hard time because her job was like out like in a remote cabin like keeping track of the weather or something something like that I'm I'm not sure exactly but she just didn't look very like she felt very good and so I was like, you should really come if you, if you can make it like, uh, maybe not should, it's a great way to say it, but you know, if you can make it, I think you'd really like it. Um, and she's like, yeah, I don't think so. You know, anyway, I did my part in the show and I looked out and I could see her in the crowd and, and, uh, 
it was dark, but it was that, that um, experience where you can see the, the stage lights on people's faces and she was there and she was just bawling, like just crying. And it was like this big, big, big release for sure. You know, cause well, that's my guess anyway, is, is that it was this big, like she didn't want to come cause she didn't really want to feel anything, you know? Maybe that was my she guess. Didn't and want I to feel how much she was feeling by herself in front of other people, but that's yeah. that permission in that dark room. Yeah. It was like a movie theater, like so dark. You couldn't really see, but I could see them and uh, I'll never forget that. And it made me feel like, wow, that person really took a risk to come out anyway, even though they weren't feeling super awesome. Um, and that music can really move things for people. Uh, we didn't talk after, you know, I have lots of stories about talking to people after shows, but I'll never forget that visual ever. I'm fully crying. Just kidding. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish I could have given her a hug as I didn't, I didn't see her after. And, um, but, uh, cause we left the next morning, you know, the whole thing, but. Well, you know, you probably, I mean, your invitation was a f- kind of a hug. Yeah. You were saying, I see you. Like makes me think of that teen you were like, I was so privileged, but I felt so alone and so unseen, mm-hmm. right? I was the kid. I was the kid that could not, if I was going to have my, my stuffed animals in the bed, I couldn't just have one. Like all of them had to be in the bed. I couldn't leave anybody out ever, you know, and like they would all be there or none of them would be there because I would feel bad. Like I would feel literally, I would feel bad. And so I think that that's a part of bringing people together for me now, you know? Okay. We are almost at the end here. We're getting very close. I could talk to you forever. You've answered so many questions without being asked, which is super impressive. (laughs) We are at fun questions to end with chapter. Great. It's one of my favorite chapters in this. Your bestie. I have not said this to anybody yet. So, and I know that, I know that you're partnered, but just pretend that you're not. Okay. Your bestie decides to create an online dating profile for you. Okay. (laughs) Okay. What do they write? Oh, I did online date for a very long time. Well, think of your bestie. Who's your bestie? Well, I have so many, but, uh, there's stuffed animals. Yeah. So many stuffed animals. So many besties. I have so many. And I never have to sleep with all of them. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. (laughs) That's a different story. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. I mean, I did online date for a while and I'm just trying to remember what, I said even. No, not you saying about yourself. What does your like pal say about you? Oh, I guess I feel I feel like my friend Sarah would just say like the best human on the planet. But she says that all the time and, and a really good catch. Something like That's that. So na- okay, what would Steve Mariner write in your dating profile? Um, I don't know. I'm allowed to say that. Mine would not be very flattering. I'm just going to say if Steve Mariner wrote my dating profile, be like intense, bossy. <laughs> Gets it done. I love Steve Mariner. Me too. I really love that guy. Yeah. He, it would say no longer playing bar shows. Yeah. Yeah. No longer playing bar shows and uh, probably like looking for a nice girl. <laughs> I, you're the only person I can really ask that question to you. I put that question on the thing, but I was like, oh, no, it's hilarious. Do you have any hidden talents or like obscure things that you do, like obscure hobbies that the average listener would not suspect? I know how to juggle. I really like playing golf. Okay. Shorts or skirt or linen pants? Which one is it? I wear shorts. I know we have spoken about this. I don't own a skirt. I feel uncomfortable that they exist. I don't even really understand. Wait, okay, wait. 
what? You feel uncomfortable that skorts exist? Yeah. Then you know how I feel about shorts. Yes. Yes. I feel about shorts, how you feel about skorts. <laughs> and now we have the title of our first song. Shorts and skorts. <laughs> the future. It will be premiered at a folk festival workshop for sure. Sorry, I got to digress again. Because I want to know, what's the festival workshop that you really, title that you really want to play? And what's the one that you're like, never make me play that title? Maybe, I guess I can do the never one. Like maybe like Canadian indigenous artists all together at the same time. You know, something like that. Who have nothing in common other than someone else thinks that that makes them have something in common. I get it. Yeah. Or like putting the word Canadian first or all those things. Um. What would I want to play? I don't know. What's the what's so a top one that you've ever played? Uh, maybe this sort of maybe cheesy, but whenever there's one that's like songs of home or of the land or anything like that, I really love those because a lot of the songs that I write reflect on water and and the place that my family's from and yeah, so I like that. Oh, that's interesting. I would not have expected that answer, but I love that answer so much. And in the future, when I program all festivals across Canada, I will be certain. Yes. To add that workshop title. I love it. What a gift this was to spend this hour with you. I know, miigwech. Loved it very much. Merci beaucoup. And mm. I hope that uh, I hope that we shall see each other in a random parking lot of a travel lodge again. <laughs> you can count on it.
thanks for listening to the ARC podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please take a look at our show notes. Our producer and engineer is Tim Frazier of Murdoch Entertainment. Our host is Tressa Levasseur. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for making this podcast possible. And thanks to you for tuning in. Keep a fire.